أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم سبحانك اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم وعنده مفاتح غيب لا يعلمها إلا هو ويعلم ما في البر والبحر وما تسقط من ورقة إلا يعلمها ولا حبة في ظلمات الأرض ولا رطب ولا يابس إلا في كتاب مبين. The bulk of today's lecture will be about the battle of Hunayn, inshallah. And this happens towards the end of the Prophet stay in Mecca after the conquest of Mecca. Now the scene is that Quraysh has entered into Islam. Uh, the leaders of Quraysh, Abu Sufyan, and others have accepted the Prophet as their leader. They have accepted the faith. They have given allegiance to Islam as both a religion and a state at this point. But there were still larger tribes outside of Mecca that did not give their allegiance to the Prophet and they still thought that they were able to militarily overtake the Prophet So they all amassed behind these, this tribe of the Hunayn, and this is an area outside of Mecca, under the leadership of Malik ibn Auf. So Malik ibn Auf, after he's observing the conquest, and, and throughout the entire seerah, there are always uh, people gathering intelligence. So it's not, it's not like the, the, the Prophet is in Mecca, no one knows what's happening outside. There are people that are constantly coming and going. So Malik ibn Auf, he's observing what's happening, and he sees that now Mecca has fallen, so he thinks, I'm going to invade, I'm going to attack the Prophet and I'm going to conquer all of this. He's so confident that he's going to win, that he comes to Hunayn, not only with all of his people, but they bring all of their things, they bring all of their families. They bring their women, and they bring their children, and they bring their livestock, and they bring everything that they own. So when one of the older war veterans there is talking with Malik. He's like, I hear the sounds that you don't hear in, in the battle camp. I hear, you know, babies crying. I hear women chattering. I hear, you know, the livestock. What's going on? He's like, oh, we brought everything with us. He said, why would you do that? He said, because it will, it will encourage everyone that they see their families behind them. They're fighting for their family. So the man tells him, you know, but, but if you win, these people are not going to help you. It's only the people that are armed that are going to fight. And if you lose, you're going to lose everything. So, you know, Malik, he's, he's, he's confident that he's going to win. He brings everything with him. Now, at the same time, the Prophet, ﷺ, he sent Abu Hadrad, uh, one of the companions, to spy on Ghatafan. So these are the tribes that have amassed with Ghatafan in the region of Hunayn. The battle is called Hunayn, but these are the, the people of Ghatafan. And he tells the Sahabi, he says, you go and infiltrate and you stay there with them. You stay, don't go and find out, you know, go and just be with, with the people. And this happens a few times during the seerah of the Prophet Now these details are important because we build on these details rulings. Now this specific story I have a, a relationship with for the following reason. One time I was in one of my classes and somebody from the intelligence community was in the class. It's very common that you know people from the military, the police, and 
they come and they attend classes to, to, for their own benefit. So he asked the sheikh, he said, I work in intelligence, and sometimes I'm sent on missions. How do I conduct my prayers? So the, the sheikh mentioned this story, and he said the Prophet ﷺ, when he sent the Sahaba to, to the other side, the enemy lines, he didn't tell the men to pray. So when you do your mission and you can't pray because you know you're maybe you're undercover or whatever, then you pray when you, you make up the prayers that you miss when you come back. So there is a section in the Sharia that allows for that. Now don't go take this ruling, all of you think that it's you know okay. I'm not want to pray at the end of the week. No, this is a very very sensitive situation. But when you read these details, the reason we have these details is for us to benefit. You know, okay, imagine if somebody's in the intelligence community and he's sent out undercover, somebody's working for the FBI or whatever, they're undercover in like a sting operation. Where they're gonna, you know, oh it's oh, prayer time that my, my app went off and you know they just have to get out of characters. They're not gonna be able to do that. So this time the Prophet says something he sent him and he said stay with them means you know adopt the mannerisms that they think you're amongst them. At this time Religion was a part of the political identity. So he's saying, this is like, for example, if you're Jewish during World War II and you're escaping the Nazis, you're not going to wear your Jewishness on your sleeve, literally. You're going to hide so you can escape. So if you have a Star of David or you have like the letter Chav that they wear for Mahayim for life, whatever the things that Jewish people wear, they're going to change, hopefully, those things so they can escape. This because at that time, that religious identity meant life or death. Just like at this time, the religious identity of Islam meant life or death. Okay, so we have to understand also that association. Anyway, the Prophet ﷺ, he leaves Mecca on the 6th of Shawwal in the 8th year of the Hijrah. 19 days after the conquest of Mecca. So the Prophet ﷺ was in Mecca for almost 3 weeks. We talked in the last couple of lectures of all the things that happened during that time. Now the Prophet ﷺ is going to uh, uh, meet the enemy again. He left Mecca with 12,000 people, most of them from the older Muslim community, but many of them from the new Muslims of Mecca now, who have given allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ. And that's important for the story of this battle. The intelligence reports that came back to the Prophet ﷺ, he said, look, all of these tribes of Khatafan, they've all come together, and they have all of their livestock. They have all of their family. And then the Prophet smiled. He said, that's our spoils of war tomorrow, inshallah. See, the confidence that the Prophet is giving as the leader, a lot of these people, they just became, you know, Muslim. Sort of, they had to kind of situation. So the psychology could be, you know, people like Abu Sufyan, we talked about how Abu Sufyan loved fancy things. They could be worried. Like, oh, we became Muslim. Alhamdulillah, the conquest of Mecca was was bloodless, but look, now we're in trouble again. This might not be a good thing. So the Prophet was also instilling this confidence in the people around him. He said, ah, all that stuff, that's going to be ours tomorrow. And so, of course, that's not what the Prophet was concerned about. Because all of that stuff, as we will find out, ends up going back to those people. We'll find out. As they are leaving, they pass by this area called Anwat. It's like a tree that the pagans used to go and do sacrifices there, and they used to sort of congregate there. So the new Muslims, they're like, hey, you know, we want an unwat, you know, like they have an unwat, you know, give us something. He's like, you know, aren't you, don't you get it? You know, this is like what happened with Ben Israel. Didn't the people tell Moses, make us a, a God the way that they have a God? He's like, that's not what this is about. You know, so the Prophet is, he's still dealing with this issue. 
The initial battle happens on the 10th of Shawwal. So from the 8th to the 10th, they're traveling. And that's a huge part of the seerah, by the way. For, for modern seerah scholars, they're spending a lot of time now. The trend is to look at how long it took for these journeys to take. So they find a camel, and they measure how long a camel can, how far a camel can walk. And then they measure the average between that and how long an average person can march. And then they go back to the seerah and they try to demarcate how long actually these journeys would take hours. So if it took them three days, then how many kilometers did they march per day? So it's a new area of study of the seerah, you know, that's going to be very beneficial because many of these timings, we find different narrations. Some narrations said it took this long, some narrations it took that long. So this new study, inshallah, will help us, you know, accept some of these narrations as more, more sound. So the battle starts on the 10th of Shawwal, and it's not really going well for the Muslims in the beginning, because they find themselves surrounded by these hilltops, and their arrows are raining down on the Muslims. Arrows and stones and spears, it's, it's very fierce. So the Muslims, they start splitting. They start splintering. Largely because a lot of these people are new. You know, the, the people from Beth have been there, done that. You know, we're used to being, you know, outnumbered three to one, four to one, five to one. This is, you know, not no big deal. But the new Muslims, this is like, whoa, what did we get ourselves into? So in this episode, the Prophet Sassan, he demonstrates, what, he always has this trait, but he demonstrates his bravery. So in all of this, imagine their arrows are flying from both sides, and everyone is, is splitting up, and then the Prophet says, he's the one that stands up. He says, I am Muhammad. I am the son of Abdullah. You know, he's yelling, he's pronouncing his name. I mean, this is, he's putting a target on himself, telling everyone to hide behind me. So he, he gathers his troops behind him. You know, they're, they're the ones that are supposed to protect him. But he's the one on the front, and Abu Sufyan is holding, you know, the, the reins of his donkey. And the Prophet is run, walking into the enemy line. Now imagine if you're there and the Prophet is walking towards harm. What are you going to do? You got, you got to go protect the Prophet. So this is how brave he was. And the Sahaba said, in the thick of battle, when battle was the thickest, we used to hide behind the Prophet. Not that we used to protect the Prophet. The hadith is, when the battle was thick, and fierce, we used to hide. We used to hide behind Rasulullah. No fear. This man had no fear. Complete confidence in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In this uh, battle, the Prophet also took you know, from the earth and he threw it in the in the direction of the enemy. He said, Shahid al-Wujub, just like in the, the, the story when the Prophet escaped Mecca to Medina in the Hijrah. You know, so this is a reoccurring theme that the Prophet and then they win. They win the battle. And I want to just go over these two verses from Surah At-Tawbah because they're, they're two of my favorite verses that talk about this episode. Allah has given you victory many times. And especially on the day of Hunayn. On the day of Hunayn, you were very happy with your numbers. You know, you thought our oh, 12,000 were the people of Medina and Mecca were going to win, but all those numbers didn't help you. 
Because you became scared and you started to scatter. So it didn't, it's not about the numbers. It's about the quality of the numbers. And then Allah descended his sakina, his, his blessings and his quietness and his peace on the believers. And he uh, descended warriors of which you do not see, meaning the angels. And Allah punished the people, the disbelievers. And this is the end of those that disbelieve. So these verses, they're, they're per, I mean, they speak of this episode, but for me, they're personal because whenever things get tough, I remember these two verses. And I remember that it's not about the odds. It's not about the numbers. It's not about, you know, I came in, I'm prepared. I know what I'm doing. It's not about that. You know, it's about the state of your heart and your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this was a massive, massive victory, right? Because what happens, not only did they win militarily, but they get all this stuff. What's all the stuff that they got? 6,000 prisoners, 24,000 camels, and over 40,000 sheep. That's massive. 6,000 prisoners. That's half of the Muslim army. They want the, the army. The Muslim army is 12,000. They captured 6,000 prisoners. Now, Batafan, they, they splinter off into three groups. A third goes to a Ta'if. A third goes to a Nakhla. And a third goes to Al-Tas. The Prophet sends two battalions, one to Al-Tas and one to Nakhla, and he himself, he goes to Ta'if, because most of the people of Ghatafan, after this battle, they fled to Al-Tas. Okay, so the Prophet is, is continuing. So the next battle in the Sira is the battle or the siege of Al-Tas, but it's really part of the same scenario. The Prophet captured all of these things, but he didn't distribute the spoils of war yet. He's, he's waiting to see what's going to happen. The Prophet he goes to Ta'if, which is a little bit further outside of Mecca, and he lays siege to Ta'if for 40 days. Different narrations say different, you know, 15 days, 20 days. And that's what I meant by saying those different narrations, when we study all of these dates and the, the speed of the movement, it will help us prefer some of the narrations over them. Let's just go with 40. Okay, so 40, uh, 40 days siege. And the Prophet uh, ordered that the catapults be... Uh, established, and there were some skirmishes, but they were not, you know, the, the people of Ta'if, they had enough, uh, Ta'if is like a, a very agriculturally rich city, so they didn't really, they could stay hunkered down for over a year. So the Prophet after four, you know, a month, that's a long time, that's more than all the time they spent in Mecca, the Prophet asked his companion, what do you think we should do? Some say, let's just leave, some say, let's stay. The Prophet said, we're going to leave. So some of the companions, they got upset, you know, we didn't come all this way. Uh, just to give up. But the Prophet left them. Now, remember way back when we talked about in the Meccan period of the Sira, when the Prophet left Mecca to go to Ta'if to invite him to Islam, how he was treated. Remember, he was stoned and he bled and he was rejected. Now, if you were a vengeful person, and you have this, these troops now, and this military strength, and catapults, and all of these things, and you're back at Ta'if, you know, you decimate that city. But not only did the Prophet not do that, he left. He left them. Why did the Prophet leave them? Because in the back of his mind, he wants to give the people a chance to come back, accept Islam, and take all of your possessions back. So on the way back from Ta'if, 
the Prophet ﷺ, he waits 10 days before distributing the spoils of war. Now imagine all these people are around the Prophet ﷺ, all they see is these prisoners and these camels and the sheep. This is, you know, a huge uh, windfall, cash windfall for them. All of these things are, have a, a dollar amount on them. You know, you can sell these for gold and silver. And they're waiting for it, but the Prophet ﷺ is waiting day after for 10 whole days. Plus the 40 that just we just passed, that's 50 days, plus the three, four days of the initial battle. I mean, all of us were talking about two months. All of this, the Prophet wants these people to come, accept their faith, stop fighting, and reclaim their things. So unfortunately, that doesn't happen. So after the 10th day, the Prophet he starts distributing everything. And he distributes a lot. He distributes so much that the people observing him say, this is a man who gives... And he is not fearful of, of having poverty. He gives as if he has infinite amount. This is the generosity of Rasulullah. And he gives Abu Sufyan all this stuff. He's like, how about my son, uh, Yazid? He's like, okay, he gives him the same amount. He's like, how about my other son, Muawiyah? He gives him the same amount. He just made this man wealthy. He made a wealthy man more wealthy. Three times over. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Not fearful. Because he knows that the origin of all of this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the same man who would tie stones on his stomach to hold his hunger. This was the same man whose who's, the fire was not lit, meaning the oven was never turned on in the house of the Prophet for weeks. Meaning there was no food in the house of the Prophet This is the same person who when he's given, he gives. So wealth only accentuates what you already have. Wealth is not going to change your behavior. It only accentuates what kind of behavior you already have on the inside. So this was the character of the Prophet ﷺ. He was given the opportunity for revenge. He didn't take it. He forgave. When he was given the opportunity of wealth, he didn't take for himself what he gave and he distributed. So now everything is distributed. And finally, after all of this, after all of the distribution, all of the tribes that fought with the Prophet ﷺ, they come to Mecca making their repentance, declaring their Islam. But now everything has been distributed. All the people of prisoners have been distributed. All of the wealth has been distributed. So the Prophet accepts their tawbah. Of course, this is what he's after. And then he tells him, you know, tomorrow, why don't you, you know, declare this to everyone so everyone sees. So the Prophet negotiates with everyone. And all of the things were distributed, returned back to the people of Ghatafan, the people that fought the Prophet only a couple months prior. And all of these things return. Now imagine if you're there, or if you hear about this, the type of reputation that's associated with those these type of stories. This is how Islam spread. Because this was what Islam meant. This is what Muslims meant. This forgiveness and generosity and, you know, uh, mercy and brotherhood and sisterhood and you know, all of this is what Islam meant at this time. So if you're in the Arabian Peninsula and you hear these stories, this is the story that's being transmitted to you. The Prophet ﷺ returns to Mecca, he performs one Umrah, and then he returns to Medina at the end of the Qiyadah in the eighth year of the Hijrah. And then we begin the new year, the ninth year of the Hijrah. In the beginning of this year, this is when the Prophet ﷺ starts sending delegations to all and correspondences with all of the Arab tribes. It's what's called Ayn al the year of all of the delegations. And this is when all the delegations start trickling into Medina, and either they accept Islam or they stay in their religion, but they establish peace with Medina, etc. We're going to talk about that later. And there were a few battles that took place 
in the first, let's say, quarter of the ninth year of the Hijrah, I, I only want to talk about one really quickly. And this is the one that took place in Rabi'al Awal, in the ninth year of the Hijrah. And Imam Ali, alayhi salam, he was sent um, to this area uh, of a Christian heretical sect. Now, remember way back when we talked about in the beginning of the class, we talked about how at this time in the ancient world, there were many, many Christian sects. And there was a huge, um, almost like war between these sects. Some of them win and some of them lose pretty bad. The group that was in this city or this region of Atit, they were considered by the rest of Christendom a heretical sect. And the head of this area, his name was Uday ibn Hatim. So when Imam Ali goes and, and uh, he wins, Uday uh, escapes and he goes to the Levant. And who was captured? Uday's sister. When she comes, when Imam Ali brings her back to Medina and she meets the Prophet, she tries to negotiate her freedom. And then the Prophet, he keeps telling her, isn't your brother the one who fled Allah and his Prophet? And he's sort of like he asked rhetorically. And this happens three days in a row. And then finally the Prophet freed her. And she goes to the Levant to see her brother. So when she goes to her brother, she tells her brother what happens. You're never going to believe what happened. Look, look at how the Christians treat us. And look at how Prophet Muhammad has treated us. You need to go and meet this man. So Uday leaves Shem. Remember, he's sort of like a fugitive at this point from the perspective of Medina. And he travels to Medina unguarded, unarmed, without any protection. And he goes straight into Medina. And he goes straight to visit the Prophet And the Prophet he ends up converting him. The Prophet in this exchange, he tells him of many things that are about to come. And he tells him about his own religious beliefs. He says, don't you believe such and such, but don't you guys do such and such? Meaning he's teaching him in a rhetorical way that you're not even practicing what you claim your religion holds. And in this exchange of hadith, all sahih, the Prophet tells him what will happen. You know, Kisra the, will fall, the Persia will fall to Islam, and you will see this, and you will see this, and you will see that. So this is one of the major stories from which we get our eschatological beliefs, beliefs of what will happen. And uh, this happens again, as I said, in the first quarter of the ninth year of the Hijrah, and we'll pick up, inshallah, next time where we left off. Allah ta'ala a'la wa'ala. Any questions or comments? So we're getting really towards the end. I think there's going to be two more lectures until we get to the passing of the Prophet Sassan, and then we'll probably maybe go a little bit further about the four for the fifth, as we talked about. But about two more lectures for the seal, or three, two or three. You wanted to say something? Okay, I should go home, Khalas. <laughs> mm. Then I have uh, three questions. What three? Okay. And what happened to Abu Sufyan after the Prophet's death? Abu Sufyan becomes, after the Prophet's death, Abu Sufyan becomes the governor of Ashant, of the Levant. And this is what begins the problems between Abu Sufyan. Uh, uh, no, sorry, Muawiyah becomes the governor of the Shem. Abu Sufyan, uh, I don't know when he dies. Sorry, I was thinking of his son Muawiyah. His son Muawiyah becomes the governor of, of Shem. Uh, 
I don't know when Abu Sufyan died. I think he, he must have he must have died uh, before, maybe during the Khilafah of Sayyidina Abu Bakr or Sayyidina Umar. I have to look that up. And the other two how should the Sunnis view the house of Basquiat and the house of Mulasad? How do the Sunnis look at the Falsafa school and Mullah Sadra? Uh, Mullah Sadra was a genius. You know, his book, The Asfar, he's a genius. And philosophy, uh, there are different types of philosophy in Islam. There is the peripatetic philosophy, which is called al mashayun because peripatetic means to walk. So Aristotle used to just like walk around with his students. So they called them the walkers. And in Arabic, and mashayun is those that walk. So the peripatetic school of philosophy, or the Greek philosophy, that was like Ibn Sina and Al-Kindi, Ibn Sina and Farabi, who we talked about in Juma. But, you know, they're not going to last so long because there are things in that school that are just completely antithetical to our belief as Muslims. Forget Sunni and Shia. So Imam al-Ghazali, you know, he like body slammed the philosophers. So when he wrote Tahafat al-Falasifah, it was really hard for them to recover. Even though Ibn Rushd wrote Tahafat al-Tahafat, he he tried to counter Imam al-Ghazali's, but it didn't, you know, it didn't work. When Hajjat al-Islam speaks, you know, that's it. So he's like, look, I'm with you guys, but, you know, you also believe uh, in these three, four things that are kuf. Forget like bid'ah, they're just disbelief altogether. So what's up with that? So he kind of like slams philosophy. After that, some of that philosophical school trickles into Shiism. And it's combined with metaphysics. And that's where you get people like Mullah Sadra. And that's all stuff that is for us to, to look at. But, you know, very few people are going to be able to understand that. So it's great. Uh, it's a great addition. It's a way of thinking. It's something for us to consider. But it's not our mainstream Sunni belief. Our mainstream Sunni belief ends up becoming Tasawuf. So Islamic uh, metaphysics of course there are different schools within that It be the most uh, similar or near expression to the Shia school is the school of people like Ibn Arabi and the Suhrawardi uh, and their students for example and that's sort of where they kind of can speak to each other but even that within Sunni Islam is very difficult for most most uh, people to understand. And when we were studying, we were not allowed to read uh, Ibn Arabi. You know, in the beginning, there are certain things that you know, we would always want to bring up with the teachers. The Sheikh said, no, this is not for you right now. So that will come later. So, you know, that's a little bit about, but this, these, these are great additions to uh, our intellectual heritage. That was number two. Number three? Oh, okay. Two for one. Two for Do you want to read Mullah Sadr? No, I, I was seeing at school there's this big encyclopedia and about Muslim theologians and philosophers. And for Mullah Sadr, they kept many pages just from Mullah Sadr. But for other scholars, they kept like one page. Oh, that's because the Orientalists, uh, you know, Louis Massignon and these, and Henri Corban and these people, they found the stuff very interesting. And similar to Christian, you know, theolo theology. So this is when they translated these things. They're, they're not going to translate Arazi and you know 
mantiq and fiqh and usul al-fiqh. So these things are lopsided in the Orientalist languages for that reason. But it's not indicative in reality, you know, Imam al-Razi and the Suyuti and al-Ghazali, you know, they take up 90% of the room. And then all that other stuff takes up 10% of the room. You see what I'm saying? Even Ibn Arab, you know, wonderful. But Ibn Arabi's futahat are his insights. Okay? Meaning, this is his spiritual experience with his own saluk. I mean, you know, it out matches all of our spiritual insights put together, but still it's only partial. Because that's only what Allah allowed him to, to witness. So, if there's a big, like, elephant in the room, and it's covered, and we each have a portion of it, and we're describing it, that's what the Futuhat is describing. But his portion is so big, and mine and yours are like, you know, maybe yours is bigger than mine. Mine is, you know, like a pin. And so I'm like, whoa, there's something there. That's all I see. But I'm seeing it from the other side. So if I was given something as big as Ibn Arabi, for example, which will never happen, I will, I will be describing something completely different because I'm seeing it from this side and he saw it from this side. You see? So this is how we have to look at it. And this is the hikmah in the, our teachers telling us in the beginning, you know, don't read this stuff because that's not, you know, the, the point is to be like Ibn Arabi. Not to read Ibn Arabi and say, oh, I read Ibn Arabi. And we did. We read Ibn Arabi and stuff like that. And I kind of understood. And there's some fascinating insights. Maybe not for public. I can share with you. But I mean, he has some incredible, incredible things. I mean, that's why we call him Sheikh Al-Akbar. Radiallahu anhu wa ardar. The Syrians, they say, Khadim al-Shara al-Mutahir, Sayyidi Sheikh Al-Akbar. Right? He has, he has serviced the entire Sharia. Muhyiddin Al-Ali was a mujtahid. Of the Dahir, he was Dahir, he was a mujtahid. He has his own opinions. Yeah, he's not just like this, you know, whirling dervish. He was a mujtahid. He is an ocean of prophetic knowledge, the Syrian poet says. Sheikh Al-Akbar is Sheikh al Back to Earth. Anything else in the mundane world? Yeah. I don't know if you've spoken about this in other sessions, but you mentioned that you went on a uh, retreat in, I think it's in, in England or Great Britain. Yeah. So you talked about it at some point. I did not talk about it. It was interesting. It was like a wellness retreat with Muslims. And half of us were really happy, and half of us were scared that everything we were doing was haram. <laughs> so I ended up spending the whole time trying to link everything we were doing with some kind of hadith. But I, I meant it was like a reaction. I didn't mean to do that. But I ended up at the end, that's what I, so I, I ended up, I was supposed to just be a participant. Um, so all of the people, that, the trainers or the facilitators, they were not Muslim. So like, for example, the morning, you have to do like this uh, Tai Chi or like fake Tai or something like that, you know. So everyone's like, whoa, it's haram, it's bit out. Like, this is awesome, you know. And um, so we, I had to talk about that. Many parts of the of the week we had to be silent. Um, and believe it or not, a lot of people didn't like that. I was like, well, you know, the Prophet ﷺ told us, are the people dragged into the hellfire except with what their tongues read? Uh, there's a whole. Book of the Salaf Kitab is sunk, the book of shutting up and being quiet. So the, what's wrong with that? I mean, we should be quiet. Uh, you know, so I kept trying to relate these things. So I think 
mindfulness and wellness is something that I'm personally uh, interested in, but I see that our community, well, those type of facilitators won't work because it seems like too new age. The end, the, the end was the best. So the end, they had like a bonfire. And then we were all given these like little pieces of wood. And we were supposed to say, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I promise that this coming year I'm gonna do something, and then throw, throw the wood into the fire. So they were like, they consulted me, like, what do you think is gonna happen? I was like, yeah, you know, I can see fire is a pretty big problem for us. Fire is not something that we consider cleansing. So it was like a wish. So I said, let's let's not use the word wish. Let's just say commitment. You know, I'm gonna commit to that. But I mean, my hack didn't work. The people that were upset were definitely upset, and I was like, Mr. Bidah and like Mr. Haram. I was like the messed up Muslim American and like they don't want to see me ever again. And I, I promised that I was going to practice more singing. Um, <laughs> that was actually one activity we had to sing together. Ooh, those people didn't even show up. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it was nice. This is good. <clears throat> so we sang like this African folk song. Uh, I loved it. You know? I mean, because I used to sing in college. Um, so it needs a lot of work. But definitely needed, you know, because we don't we don't move enough, and you know we're not in touch with our issues, and um, you know we get to walk in nature. That was beautiful, and the English countryside is beautiful. Uh, yeah, so uh, I think they're going to do it this year in the United States, and I'm and I'm hopefully I'll try to work with them in the future because I want I hope more Muslims can get um, exposure to things like that. But it it was very rough. People objected that we had to take turns washing the dishes. Can you believe that? Like, I we didn't come here to wash dishes. I was like, it's khidma. You know, didn't the Prophet say, you know, this about khidma? So they were not, not, it was very, it was too, too avant garde. No, we were all Muslims. And we prayed Jama'ah, you know, we prayed Fajr Jama'ah. And then the people that were upset, they didn't come to Fajr prayer. I guess the prayer was too far away. So, you know. Dancing? No. I, 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 I draw the line in dancing. The Tai Chi, you know, showering the light on you, that was as far as I could go. I could get my head around that. But, you know. I'm, I'm happy not dancing. So what group is this? It's a it's a British. No no no, no it's not a tariqa at all. It's just these British Muslims that there's a wellness center in the country, in the British countryside, uh, and they host retreats, wellness retreats, and they have an organic farm that so all the food that you eat is from that farm. So the, this these Muslim these Muslim people in London they, they thought that this would be a nice thing to do before Ramadan. So I think they also didn't know like the details of the program. So I think we were all sort of just trying to like, you know, figure it out. Did they contribute with the farming or was that? No, I'm not gonna do that. I'm happy someone preparing the food. I can clean the dishes. It's all vegetarian, there's no there's no meat. A lot of Muslims are upset with that. They're like, yo, where's the biryani? <laughs> It was funny. 
when we had the Sri Lankan thing in the mosque, uh, I think that was before Ramadan, there was a Buddhist uh, priest, and I talked to him about that. I think I had just come back. It was, yeah, it was right before Ramadan. And he said that they have a retreat center, I think, in... Um, is it West Virginia? I thought it was in Maryland. Yeah, so I, I, I told him, I said, you know, I really would love to to do something with you guys um, because he's, he's, he's a Zen Buddhist, so they're much more into the, uh, you know, the silent meditation, which is okay. The other, the other practices are like religious practices we can't participate in, but, you know, being silent and, you know, helping to quiet your mind, that's a form of tafakwa, that's fine. So you need to be in an aesthetically nice place also where there's no noise and there's no, like we weren't allowed to use the internet after a certain hour. I mean, it's really, you're really supposed to be in that type of mode. Um, it's very, it was very, I mean, I, mashallah, I really enjoyed it, especially before Ramadan. I, I felt like that was very nice. This was um, maybe five days of it. Okay, so, can Something that is similar to the line with our, you know, Yeah, a couple of years ago, two years ago, we had a retreat, ICCP. We had a retreat also. Yeah, but it was a family retreat. Yeah, this this is different. The, the, the purpose of this is for you to disconnect with the outside world. So there's no phones, you know, no internet, no TV. This was an old English country house. It was like 200 years old. It's a very it's original infrastructure. And the idea was for you to be more in touch with, you know, yourself, thinking, realigning yourself. Yeah. So that's good. We need that. But, you know, I think it just needs a little bit of tweaking so it's more compatible for our way. Yeah, yoga, I don't do yoga. You can call it something else in this Just for Yeah, they were brothers and sisters. But no holding hands. <laughs> Anybody else? What time is Aisha? 8.45? Importance of Senate. And why do we, students of knowledge of people who study this religion with that emphasis on? The whole religion is based on transferring information from one generation to the next generation. Everything we know about Islam, including the Quran itself, comes from one person relaying that information to another person. So the chains of transmission, those chains of those people, that is our deen. It's not like a feature. It is the deen. That is the deen. The deen is not what's in the books. The deen is that information that is passed person to person. 
And that's why Abdullah bin Mubarak, the famous Tabai, he said, change of, of transmission are from the religion. And if it were not for chains of transmission, anybody would say what they want. So our chain of transmission is how the Salaf verified information. What was important and what is important is not the information as much as the person narrating the information. So if somebody that, if my teacher is considered trustworthy and his teacher is considered trustworthy, then therefore that information that is being passed is trustworthy. Of course, the information has to be, you know, has to fit with our way of thinking, of course. But the premise is on the person transmitting the information. The person has to be morally upright. They have to be known. Uh, they have to be known to practice Islam, to honor the sunnah of the prophets, etc., etc., etc. So everything is passed through that. So there is no, if somebody can't produce the, the chain of transmission of the piece of information that they're advocating, then that piece of information has no place whatsoever in the deen. And anybody who inclines towards bid'ah, they have no chain of transmission. And everybody that holds the sunnah, they are the people that actually, it's very simple. You ask somebody, where did you get this information from? Who taught you? You know, what is the lineage? Where are you getting from this? Oh, I studied in this school. This is my teacher. This is my lineage. So, oh, mashallah. You, know, you ask the, the Salafi person, they say, Yaqi, I'm talking to you about the Sunnah, and you're talking to me about people? You know, Rijan, Dahnu Rijan, Hum Rijan. Yeah, you know, when Imam Shafi said that, Rahimahullah, Imam Shafi meant that, you know, they're making it to head, I'm making it to head. And you're like, you know, and you can't. Uh, you're not worthy of, of carrying Imam Shafi's shoes. Okay? So this is the Sunnah. This is Islam, is where this information came from. So everything in our in our deen, all of the sciences, all of the disciplines, all of the major books, all of the books of hadith, they all have chains of transmission between us and them. Whether it's the collection of Sahih Hadith, whether it's the other collections of Hadith, whether it's the Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. Our theological school, or Abu Mansur al-Maturidi, the other theolo Sunni theological school, or whether it's to the four schools of Islamic law, the Hanafi, the Maliki, the Shafi, and the Hanbali, or whether it's to a spiritual lineage, a tariq, or of the soul, all of that is, is narrated generation after generation. And the funny thing is, is that most of those people are the same people. So the chain of tasawwuf that we have includes in it all of the major ulama of the outward sciences, uh, like um, Zakaria Ansari, was a Qadi. He's buried next to Imam Shafi, and he's a Hujjah in the Shafi school. He also narrates the 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 Khirqa of the of the Tasawwuf, the cloak of the Sufis, of the Suhba of the Tasawwuf. Uh, Abu Hajar Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani. He's a he's the Hadith. Hafid, but he's also a Shafi jurist. So our chain to Imam Shafi goes through Ibn Hajar al-Asqalid. Yani that's, you know, that's very different than... So it's not just that and that's it, but it's also how we approach the Quran and the Sunnah. That's what's also transmitted. So one of these Salafi people, they might think, oh, okay, you know, I need the Senate thing is kind of important. I'm going to go, you know, get a Senate somewhere and I'm going to go and talk about, look, or I have what I have what I have. But then how does this person understand the Quran and the Sunnah? Like we were talking today about the Hadith. 
talking about how a sign of the end of time is that people will engage in zina, they will engage, they will engage in silk, they will have musical instruments and singing. And I talked about, but the other man, some of them, like Ibn Hazm and others, they said when there are things in a row, they don't all take the same ruling. So this hadith has another meaning. Not that music is haram. Where did I get this from? It's from the Senate, it's from the Sinsila, it's from the madrasa that I studied in. There's no book that says that. But it's a principle that, I mean, it's written in the books of Qawad and things like that. But how, why do we talk like this? Is because this is how we learned. This is how we understand the deen. So when Abdullah bin Mubarak said that, that the chain of transmission is from, religion, uh, from the religion, and without this, anyone can say what they say, this is what he meant. He said, if you don't have this way of connecting yourself to the intellectual past, you will end up saying anything. that goes, oh, this is haram, this is halal. And the Prophet said, at the end of the time, somebody lying down on their sides and saying, only show me what's in the Quran. Don't show me anything else. This is hadith of the Prophet this is how yeah, this is the the ease in which people throw around the word haram and halal. This is not how we were how we were taught at all, you know. But rather, our teachers would not tell us to go teach until they thought we were ready for this responsibility. And more importantly, if somebody like me makes a mistake, there's a corrective mechanism because you go back to my teacher, and my teacher will you know will uh, will I'll get in trouble. The teacher will say, don't teach anymore, or you're not my student anymore. And I know people that claim to have studied with my teacher, and my teacher says, I kicked him out of my house. He came to me twice, and I kicked him out. So just claims, you see. So the, the, the ijaza and the senate also means that I met somebody, and this person approves of me, and allowed me to carry this chain. So now there's a relationship between me and this person. So the more of that that you have, then the more, the bigger the family is. So if I mess up, all these people are going to come to me like, this guy messed up. He, he went crazy. He can no longer say what he's saying. He can no longer, you can no longer follow him. So it corrects itself. These other people, they say whatever they want all the time. So this is our religion. How we trans transfer Islam from generation to generation. This has always been the obsession of Islam. Every generation. And it's our it has to be our obsession as well. So we transfer all of it, not part of it, inshallah, as best as we can. No, not really. They don't Salafis don't really. Even even Albani himself, Nasiruddin al Albani, he criticized the people that walk that have these chains of transmission. The ijazah in the center. So what do I need this for? Somebody gave him an ijazah once. What, what is this for? I don't need this. You see the attitude? When we would receive the ijazah, many of the students would cry. And they would say, this is my birth certificate. This paper is the day I was born. To be connected to the Prophet Look at that attitude versus someone who is this piece of paper. It doesn't mean anything. No, it means a lot. You still have to work. Ijazah means permission to start. It doesn't mean it's not a diploma. It means, okay, you can go out and do this, you can go do that. Now you have the keys, so start the journey. 
It doesn't mean like, you know, you just sit down and you're like a king. You know, it's not what it means. So, you know, no, they don't have, they don't have, this idea is not there. And this is the main, you know, what makes us understand what we can, what we can trust versus what we can't trust. And talking about the Senate, are there still um, followers of the Dahir school or the school of uh, you know, late or Tawri? The only madhabs, uh, Sunni madhabs that survived really were the four main madhabs. The other madhab, there are some chains, I think, to Ibn Hazm and stuff, but, but very rare. And this is one of the reasons why a school of thought will die over time if, if there are not enough students to carry on that, that teaching. So the four madhabs, the four Sunni madhabs, the Hanafi, the Maliki, the Shafi, and the Hanbali, they are complete. They have full chain of transmission. All of the major issues of fiqh have been discussed. The books are passed from generation to generation. There are people that service the madhab, they advance the madhab, etc. The redacted, all of that. The other madhahib, they don't have that. But today, given the situation that we find ourselves in, the direction that the muftis take is that we look to all of the madhahib of the past when we need to, to solve the problems that we have. So it's very common that we would take from an opinion of Imam al-Layth or, or Abu Dawood al-Zahiri or Ibn Hazm uh, or even some of the independent tabi'in. We'll take those independent positions because we need them because of the time that we live in is so much different than the time of the past so when we came to study we found that there were over 90 90 over 90 schools of law throughout islamic history so the first order is let's see the four sunni schools the second order is let's see the the next layer which is the dahiri the ibadi and the jafari the other madhahib of Islam, the Ibadis of Oman, the Zahiri, uh, which we know we just talked about, and the and the Jafari, the main school of, of Shiaism. Is there An Ibadi? A Zaydi, sorry, and the Zaydi school, the, the school of the Shias of Yemen. That's the next layer. So we go from four to eight. And then from the eight to the ninety. And then the 90, from the 90 to pure ijtihad, from the kitab and the sunnah, with the principles of, of uh, ijtihad, if we don't find. This is the major uh, major fiqh bodies and federal bodies. This is the process that they follow, more or less, to solve our problems. So now we are reviving all of those other schools. Not that there's a, a complete chain, so we're not going to follow the school in all of its issues, because maybe some of the schools only speak about certain issues. But in the com complexity of the modern world, we need to look at all of these schools. So we go from the four to the eight to the ninety to pure ijtihad from the kitab and the sun. You got that? You have to get what I'm saying because huh? most people don't know what I'm talking about. So this is an, a gift that you ask this question and you hear this answer. Not because I'm special, but I'm saying this is something very rare. So you think about and reflect on what I'm saying. This is the difference between people that are going to pass on Islam and people that are running into a brick wall. Even the Sunni Muslims, that they, they, they can't think beyond their own method. It also exists, unfortunately. I told you I had a Syrian, uh, you know, I love the Syrian people. 
I don't have to keep saying that. I had a Syrian sheikh. He was actually Kurdish, but yeah, you know, he's not really Syrian, he's Kurdish. And he was so strict, Shafi, that when I went to Damascus to meet him with my wife, he made my wife sit here and he sit here, and he believed that the woman's voice is aura, but he would make my wife whisper the question to me, and I would have to ask him the question. And this guy is a, is a saint, he's a wedding. He's not like a Salafi, this is a saint. Okay? That kind of attitude towards the deen is also not good. We're not going to pass on Islam. Like, imagine coming to Washington, D.C. in 2019, 2020, and me telling, oh, you know, the woman's voice is a That won't work. So that opinion is not going to work for our environment. Look how we're sitting. People come into this mosque and they're mad that why we see the women. Imagine if we tried to put these women somewhere else. They'd kill us. <laughs> and then they put a sign out front, no men allowed. <laughs> and boom. It's ICCP, Islamic Community Center for Women of Potomac. ICC, WP. Yeah, the day we have for us, and the family came, and the gentleman asked me where is the brain hall. I said, here. So he came up to pray, and he said, the wife and the daughter downstairs. Yeah. You see? In, in, the, in the Muslim world, most of the old mosques, they don't have a sufficient place for women to pray, because back then women didn't go to the mosque to pray. But now we, we need the women to come, the kids, we need everyone in the mosque. So it's also not, not we don't blame the past because they did what they needed to do. But we also need to do what we need to do. We need to be all together. We need to hear everything. We need to see everything. We need to know what's going on. All of the guys need to get married. All the girls need to get married. We have that part of it too. You know, we want the, the community to be together. There are a lot of single Family, or this family is from Ethiopia, this family is from Kenya, this family is from Senegal, this family is from Syria, and they don't find like-minded people. Now, now we're all a family. So if we're all a family, we need to be able to sit together and we have sisters of Ruda, you know. So our, our captain, captains of Ruda. So this is the type of Islam that we need. And we're only going to access this type of Islam if we understand that we need to take from all of Islam that's come, not just one method. Yeah, we need to take from all of them. Yes, this is the sunnah. The men and the women, they sat like this. This is the sunnah of Islam. And the women used to yell at the men at the time of the Sahaba. This is also the sunnah of Islam. And when the imam would make a mistake, or the khalifa would make a mistake, the women would correct the khalifa. It's also the sunnah of Islam. And in some of the hadith, it would say that a woman who had red cheeks stood up and said, well, how do you know, how does the Rawi know that the woman has it because her face is not covered? And this is one of the dalils that they used to show that the niqab is not a, not a obligation, but something extra. How would the Rawi know that what the woman's cheeks look like? For example. Not that he's checking her out, but he's describing it. There's a difference. Yeah, so this is the sunnah. The sunnah is not to put women in the basement for the simple reason is that no basement existed at the time of the Sahaba. It was just, you know, the mosque. Yeah, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu he was speaking as the Khalifa, the, you know, he said, if I make a mistake, correct me, and you know, the woman said, oh, we'll correct you, you know, we'll, we'll take care of you, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> yeah. What is your opinion on the Saudi trying to make the, 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 the Wahhabism? Yeah, Wahhabism is not a method. No, no, they're trying with their money. Yeah, you know, they can try, but I mean, that's, 
you know, that's like trying to move uh, Mecca to Las Vegas. I mean, this doesn't really happen. <laughs> you can build a cab in Las Vegas and you can, you know, advertise for Hajj and it's not going to work because it's not Mecca. So the Wahhabi thing is never going to be a Medhab because a, a Medhab is a system of thinking of how you derive rulings from the Quran and the Sunnah. So they had, Muhammad Abdul Wahhab didn't write anything except a couple of things about Aqid and he made everyone a Kafir. So that's not that's not what fiqh is. That's aqid. That's even another subject. So what they're doing now is that they are trying to align themselves with the Hanbali method. So those that are more intelligent, they will try to tie their opinions with the method of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Say, no, we're not Wahhabi, we're Hanbal. So that's a step in the right direction, you know. To so uh, you know. The madhab of fiqh is something very specific also, so it's never it's just not gonna work. I think that Shaq Yeah, well Muhammad bin Salman has been on their case. And also King Abdullah, who passed away, he was also on their case to reform. You know, so this like non madhab uh, we're gonna go beat everyone in the street for not praying is not gonna work. So they are they are trying to reform, and we pray that Allah give them tawfiq to reform. That would be very good. Uh, so you mentioned that people who have the Muslim Sufi, right? Or Khilqa. Khilqa Sufi, right? Can you think like how they carry it? Like, is like knowledge or something? Al-Khilqa Sufi. Meaning the... Yeah, I mean, when the... In, in Tasawwuf, there are two senan, one for the dhikr and one for the called the khirqa. The dhikr ma'roof, the dhikr that you take from the shaykh, this has a senan going from the shaykh to the Prophet The Prophet he, he, he was with Imam Ali and the other sahaba and he said, Afikum gharib, is there anyone, you know, is there anyone strange? They said, no, he said, close the door, raise your hands and say, la ilaha illallah, la ilaha so the, the Sanad of Dhikr goes back to this hadith of the Prophet The Prophet also said the kulli shay'in saqala wa saqalat al-qulubi dhikrullah. You know, everything has a polish, every metal has a polish, the polish of the heart is dhikrullah. So these hadith that are narrated by Imam Ali and then his son uh, Imam Hassan or Imam Ali and Hassan al-Basri, etc. This Sanad comes to us, this is the talqeen al-dhikr. This is the dhikr that you get from the Sawah. There's also another uh, senate of Tasawuf called the senate of the Khilqa. Khilqa is a cloak, or like an abaya that you wear. And this is a suhba, meaning that you have spent time with the shaykh, it's suluk, that you have spent time with the shaykh, you've been to the majalis, the shaykh has taught you, etc. And this also goes back also to Imam Ali, that the Prophet ﷺ gave Imam Ali his, abaya, his abaya, uh and then he, he put this on his son, etc., all the way down. So it's the sunnah in the Tasawwuf is that the shaykh will give you an article of clothing, maybe his jubba, maybe his taqiyya, uh, whatever. And this is just a, a, a ceremony, but it means you have spent time with me. You know, you have la zaman, you know, suhbah. Association. And usually the, the sanad is, it, 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 it's one and then it, it, it goes like that at the end. Sometimes you take them from two different people. And I took it from one person, both in, in, in Tarqeen and Al-Khirqa, um, etc.
And Imam Suyuti, he wrote a risala on the Sanad of the Khirqah to, to prove that it is Sahih. And the, the, the close is Fisir, like in the story of Sayyidina Yusuf when Yaqub went blind. So Sayyidina Yusuf in the end of the surah, he said, he said, give my, my qamis to my father, so he can see again. So the clothes, it carries the energy of the person that wears it. So when you, when you, when you go and you see the qamis of the Prophet it's not like when you see my shirt, or when you smell the fabric that touched the blessed body of the Prophet you smell, I smell the, the shirt of the Prophet I still remember that smell till now. It's not like when we smell one of our clothes, it's dirty or old. So this cloth, it carries some kind of energy associated with the person. And this is why uh, when Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, when Imam Shafi, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal sent Imam Shafi his shirt. Right? Or the other way around. You know the story? So Imam Shafi poured water over the shirt and drained it, and then he drank the water. Imam Shafi. Imam Shafi. Imam Ahmed Muhammad, his student. Or it was the other way around that, I can't remember which one. But throughout Islamic Khalid ibn Walid, he used to put the hair of the Prophet in his helmet in battle. And he said, I never lost a battle as long as I have the hair of the Prophet. So the clothes has that energy. In associated. So when the Sheikh gives you his, his you know, an article of his clothing, it's also like he's passing on something, you know, ceremonial from you to him. So this is the Sanad of the Yes. Tashrif. Tashrif. Now. Fubaraka. People are going to hear this now. This guy lost it. Baraka. We're talking about Kitab and Sunnah, and he's talking about Barakah. Kitab and Sunnah is Barakah. You know, ask Anas. Anas, when they finish writing the Quran on the loaf, and they erase it, and they put it in the, 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 the water that they used to erase the ink, they capture it, and they either drink it or they put it in a plant, because this is water that was used to write the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They drink the blood of the Prophet that's the least of it. Anybody else? The twins? The twins? You guys good? Where's, where's your sister? She left? She said this guy's speaking too, too much. Do you have any questions in your world? How are things in your world? All of the group right there. I'm most concerned about that group right you're the future, right? Yeah, see, you're like, yeah, I know I'm the future. <laughs> How's life in the, you know, the future Ummah world? How's school? Oh, yes.
Good, so now they're going to say they're teaching Sharia at, uh, <laughs> at MCPS. All these like white kids are going to come home with all this. Look, mom, look what I <laughs> Just tell them these are tattoo designs. Like, oh, wow, cool, man. You ever see these people with the tattoos in Arabic that like say like bad things? <laughs> like, and they have like tattooed on them for the rest of their life. You ever seen them? Well, life. Yeah, why not? But for the Shia, it's not haram. For the Shia, I think so. I have to confirm it. And for us, it's haram if there's blood involved. Use hen, use hen. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. yes. So Huh. Yeah, this is the hadith of Al-Kisat. Yeah. Yeah, the Prophet Sallallahu he covered Sayyidah Fatima, Imam Ali, Al-Hassan, al Hussein. He said, this is Ahl Bayt. And that was when the verses of the purification of Ahl Bayt were, were revealed. It's called Ahl Al-Kisat. Hadith is Sahih. Uh, and uh, this is also one of the important hadith because it brings us closer to our brothers and sisters, the Shia. Yeah, and this is, these are, they are called Ahlul Kisa, and this is Ahlul Bayt. The descendants of Imam Al-Hasan and Hussein are what constitute from the majority of Sunni Muslims Ahlul Bayt. Yeah, question about me talking about the camels and the walking and the whole use of it to mm. like chronologically determine the time frame. Um, how like how does that work? How do, I mean, how does it work? Do you have any more information? Kind of curious to know how they're going to do it. There are a couple of incidences in the seal that we know the uh, another calendar date for. So, like when the Muslims fought the Byzantines, they also have a record of that. Mm -hmm. So we have a couple of dates: the lunar eclipse that happened when the Son of the Prophet Ibrahim died. So we have a couple of these dates that are like pegs. We know that the Prophet was born in the year of the field. But we know from Roman sources when Abraha in the Roman calendar sought to invade Arabia or Mecca. So they start with these known things that are like internationally known events as pegs. Okay, there's no dispute because we have multiple non-Muslim sources or astronomical sources to talk about these things. Okay, so that we start there. Now we work backwards and we say this event happened. We know the, the basic chronology of the seal. That's what we're doing now. This is just basic chronology of the seal. But the siege of Taif, one hadith says 40 days, one hadith says 10 days, one hadith says 15 days, but then the Prophet came back at the end of the Qa'ad. So if they came for Hajj and then the end of the Qadah, that's let's say at the most 60 days. So and the Prophet was in Mecca for 19 days. So 40, 19, when did he make Umrah and when did he go back to Medina? How long does it take to go from Mecca to Medina? How many were there? How many were on horses? How many were on camels? How long did they march every day? All of these things need to be ironed out. So then the next question is: how long can an average person walk? In the desert, how long can a camel walk, can a horse, etc.? 
And then once we determine that, then we say, okay, so if they go out to the battle of bed, it means that they must have taken X number of hours to get there. If there's only one narration that says two days, for example, there's no other difference of opinion. Okay, it took two days. Therefore, they had to cover all of this in two days, divided by two. That means they marked X number of kilometers per day. Is that possible or not? So on and so forth. So it's a lot of work. It needs a group of scholars to be able to look at all of these different hadith, all of these different narrations. But this will allow us to give preference to certain hadith over other hadith, preference over certain narrations over other narrations, so we can develop an entire timeline as accurate as possible of all of the major events. of How many hours were they fighting in the Battle of Bedr? Right? So it's a major project. I mean, it's a generational project. It's not like a quick, you know, a quick thing. And then we have another problem, which is that the Roman calendar, the calendar that we follow, changed with Pope Gregor. So the calendar that we follow is the Gregorian calendar. Before that, it was the Julian calendar. So there needs to be a conversion factor because all of these things in the ancient world were in the Julian calendar. There used to be also ancient calendar, I don't know if anyone knows about it anymore, the calendar of Alexander the Great. So in some of the Sira books, they'll say in the year of Alexander, it was this year, that year, that this event took place. So we have to also manage the conversion between the two calendars. It's a very complicated uh, project. Uh, they're just just beginning. Inshallah, Allah give them tawfiq and they will continue. Alaykum uh, I recently uh, traveled for a bit and first thing that the speaker mentioned was that uh, Al Asar was the Kaaba and I was wondering the high, you know, got that uh, kind of rank, that kind of status, and uh, the mention some of the famous from uh, the Was he Egyptian? He wasn't Egyptian. So, uh, Al Azhar is the largest continually running Sunni seminary in the Muslim world, and that's how you know why people refer to it as the Kaaba, the etc. Just statistically, even though the Qarawin is older, the Azhar is continuous and the largest of all of the Sunni seminaries, even though the Manhaj is the same. And because of that, statistically, the Azhar just produces more Sharia scholars than any other place you know, in the Muslim world, in the Sunni Muslim world. Um, so historically, it's just been this like center of Sunni learning. So all of the major ulama, they would always pass through Egypt, either if they're from the east and they come for Hajj, they would go over to Egypt because that's not too far away, or if they're in the west, on their way to Hajj, they would pass through. So it's also geographically located, sort of, not the center, but in a place where people will be coming and going. Alexandria is also a port city, so people from the Ottoman world can also travel easily, not by land, but by sea. So it's geographically in like that corner of Africa that works for it. And the, uh, the, the amount of people that have studied in Egypt, like the Maliki method, for example, like 90% of the Maliki method were Egyptian. All of the companions of Imam Malik, they're buried in Cairo. I've been to the Zewa, it's called the Zewa of the Malikis. They're all buried next to each other, mashallah. Made Ziyara there. Uh, you're like, oh, all of these people you read about, they're all here together. I mean, it's, it's like, it's, a, it's an Egyptian method, even though the, the majority of the Malikis are in West Africa, you know, uh, Tunisia, Libya, Tunisia, uh, Algeria, Morocco. 
But the people in the past, in the classical period, that passed on there, they're all Egyptian, for example. Imam Shafa, he came. Imam Layth is buried. And all of these uh, dozens of Sahaba that are buried. And the Ahmed Bayt that came after Karbala are buried. So it became like the center. Uh, it was politically stable for large periods of time. And the infrastructure, the mosque itself, and the um, the school house, the, the dorms that are on the top on the, on the roof of the Azhar, it housed people for, it was able to house people for so long. And there were schoolhouses that were endowed by, so there's a schoolhouse for the Moroccans, a schoolhouse for the Sudanese, a schoolhouse for the Turks, a schoolhouse for the Egyptians. And these all had their own endowments and people would come, they would dorm in the top and they would attend school in the bottom, the Aruha of the Azhar. So because of that, it's just Allah blessed it, that place to be a repository of knowledge. But the Azhar thing, the Azhar way is very advanced. It's not, it's not usually, usually people come there to, to do the advanced stuff, the, the people that come from the outside. Of course, if you're Egyptian, you know, you do the whole thing from the beginning. But it's a very, like we have a department of philosophy, yes, about philosophy. So I remember I studied it in some of it, it's seen as work in the mosque, in the mosque, where the professor of philosophy came and he taught us that. Or, or monkey. They, they love the advanced stuff, the long stuff, the really detailed stuff. They're on a PhDs that they defend every year, every semester. They're always doing the PhD defensive. So just statistically, it just produces so much that it's where this reputation comes from. But Azhar is like the pyramids. It's just like an old establishment. Inshallah, that's not going anywhere. Question like going back to like origin of religion. Um, really quickly, just a question. Origin of religion, like starting off, like from what I I read something talking about monotheism being the primary like start of religion. Obviously, because Adam was first, and then human nature led to like a lot of polytheistic things being added for the sake of like remembering themselves from ancestry. Like, is there anything I can read to learn more about that? That's more. You can hear, read the history of God by Karen Armstrong. Um, I mean, that would be a good book to start. But the narrative that you just mentioned, that's our narrative. That's not necessarily the narrative in the study of religion. Most likely, in the study of religion, the narrative is going to be that polytheism was natural, and then it became it came into monotheism. So that's not what we believe in. Or how we understand it. And the issue of monotheism versus polytheism is that whenever monotheism is not clearly defined, it tends to become polytheistic. So whenever you attribute to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala human qualities, that's the, the first step that you are going to bifurcate. One God will become two, you know, two becomes eight, eight becomes whatever. Because if Allah is like me, but like a super me, then there's also like a super you. And that's sort of where the idea comes from. But for us, our monotheism is, is, is fanatically absolute. There is nothing like Allah's anger. Allah says that very clearly in the Quran. Allah's anger is not like our anger. Allah's hearing is not like our hearing. Allah's seeing is not like our seeing. And all of the anthropomorphists in Islamic history, they all had a hard time. Ibn Taymiyyah, he was also slightly anthropomorphic. They arrested him for that. And they threw him in jail because of his anthropomorphic writings. The reaction, the ulama put him in jail, not the Homeland Security, or not the CIA, or FBI, or the Mossad. It was the ulama that arrested him because of that. So 
what happens in like Greek mythology and stuff like when you when you understand it from the lens of religion is that the anthropomorphizing of the divine is what leads to polytheism. And and that's really that's the story. So sure if it's just basically attributing human qualities and then you just go through a tangent and then it just Yeah, human qualities and, and not understanding that there's no agency in an absolute sense except Allah. So when people start talking about like the power of evil, many many of us say that. This is not correct speech for the believer. Because there is no power except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Evil has no power. Shaitan has no power. Indeed, the machinations of Satan are weak. So for us, not only are we fanatically, oh, it's the wrong word, we're absolute, you know, monotheistic, but we also ascribe no agency, no power, except by what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows. So when I when I introduce agency and I forget that absolute agency belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you have power, I have power, there's a good power, there's a bad power, the power of darkness, the power of evil, the power of this, the, the power of that. And then people will say, oh, he has more money than God. Oh, he's going to create something that even God himself can't stop. Those type of sentences, you know, we wouldn't be able to say things like that because it's our responses are very quick and easy in that regard. But other religious traditions that don't preserve that way, these things can tend slowly and slowly and slowly so they become a manifestation of polytheism. From our, but all of this is from our perspective. So. We have vertical causes and horizontal causes. Do we, do we believe in horizontal causes? Of course, we, we believe in horizontal causes because our empirical data tells us that there is causality. That A affects B, that B affects C. You know, if I pick you know, this up and I drop it, it's going to fall all the time. If, if I pick this up and it didn't fall, something's wrong. So we believe in that. But we also believe, technically speaking, that Allah allows A to affect B. That Allah is what established this, this causality. So our belief allows us to experience the world the way everyone else experiences horizontally, but always refers the horizontal causality to the vertical causality of Nothing happens in the universe except that Allah allows and wills it. So we are able to believe in both. Why? Because our sources of information are multiple. We take our sources of information from the observable world. The sun rises in the east, it sets in the west. You know, the fire burns, the ice is cold, the lemon is sour, the honey is sweet. Our empirical data. We also have rational data. We know that one plus one equals two. We know that the angles of the triangle are 180 degrees. We know, we know all of these things rationally. We also know things from our theology because Allah Ta'ala tells us in the Quran because the Prophet informed us in the Hadith and because as we said a while ago our method of verification and Senate and all of that verifies this information for us then we know that this is just as reliable as seeing the sun rise in the east and setting in the west. So the sources of our information are multiple and they all work together. So they don't violate each other. The vertical Causality helps us understand and place in our religious belief, in our theological belief, what we observe in the horizontal causality that we experience. Understood?
prayer time? One minute? Okay. Allah Ta'ala A'la wa'ala.